you know, one of the things I was really encouraged about a couple of weeks ago, uh, we finished church and uh, I ran by the store on the way home to pick something up for lunch for the family and I was standing in a long line and I struck up a conversation with the guy in front of me and I just started sharing the gospel with him and we were having a great conversation. I'm walking him through Christ and who he is and what he's done and this guy stopped me in the middle of the conversation. He goes, are you a preacher? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. He says, where are you a preacher at? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor over at Westwood. And he said, Westwood, Westwood. He said, I was in Shelby Hospital two weeks ago, and one of your members, don't remember their name, walked up to me and started sharing the gospel. And he said, you would not believe what they shared with me, just how God was working in their life, and they prayed for me, and it meant so much to me. And I want you to know, as your pastor, it makes my heart so happy to hear you shining your light. Showing the gospel, preaching the gospel, investing in people, impacting our world for Jesus. That's why we exist, and I'm so, so grateful. You know, I'm, I, I, I approach this message today with great trepidation um, because it's, it's heavy, um, it's weighty, um, because I know not everyone's story in here, and those of you engaging with us online, but I do know some, if not many, who are hurting and struggling wrestling with God's justice. Bad things have happened to you. Maybe you're going through a trial right now and you're wrestling, God, why, why are you allowing this? God, why would you allow this struggle to take place in my life? Why would you allow this evil to occur? What I want to do for these next several moments is not to give you cliches. I, I don't, I don't want to give you platitudes. I want to put some rock beneath your feet. I want to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one upon whom you can build your life, the one upon whom when the rain comes and the storms come blowing upon your life, you can stand firm. I want to encourage you in the gospel. I want to remind you of Christ and what he has done for you and how in him, through him, and by him, you can stand firm in the midst of great trial. That as you wrestle and struggle through this life with difficulty and pain, I want you to look unto Christ upon the one who runs and owns the cosmos. I want to encourage you to remain steadfast in your trust of the Lord. And I want to show you the faithfulness of God from generation to generation. That when you experience injustice, when suffering and pain comes your way, and you wonder, God, why would you allow this to happen? I want you to know that you're not the first one to ever ask that question. But I want you to know you have a good and faithful and sovereign God that you can go to with your questions. And that is what we find the prophet Habakkuk doing in Habakkuk chapter 1. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1. We are in the middle of a sermon series as a faith family through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, if you're not sure where that book is located, do not fret. You have a table of contents in your Bible. Do not hesitate to use it. It's a great gift um, to help you navigate your scriptures. It's the 35th book of the Bible. Um, it's in the Old Testament. It's a minor prophet. I'm not going to go back and rehash the first week of our Habakkuk message on giving you context of what leads up to this book. 
uh, we would need some extra time. So I would encourage you, if you were not here a couple of weeks ago, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the message because I gave an Old Testament survey from Genesis all the way up to Habakkuk, giving context and the, the scaffolding of, what it, of what's going on around this text. Um, but to kind of give a brief summation to kind of set this rig up, I want you to understand a couple of things. First of all, we see at the end of King Solomon's reign, the the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of ten tribes, they called themselves Israel. Then you have the southern kingdom, they called themselves Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel only had wicked kings. There was never a leader that they had that shepherded them well, pointed them to the Lord, and their hearts turned away from God. Eventually, the Lord brought judgment upon the the northern kingdom of Israel through the nation of Assyria. They attack and they they sack um, the people of Israel. They take them into captivity and they never return to the land. The southern kingdom of Judah is where Habakkuk is ministering. And unfortunately, he's he's familiar with what happened in the northern kingdom. He saw what happened to them as they turned their back upon the Lord. And what he's seeing now in the southern kingdom, is the same things happening. The people are, are committing acts of violence. There's injustice taking place. The rich are taking advantage of the poor. We see women and children being taken advantage of. People are rejecting the word of the Lord. These false prophets rise up and claim to speak for God. And God's like, they don't speak for me. And so the Lord is brokenhearted over what's happening in the nation of Israel, in particular in the southern kingdom of Judah, but time is coming in which he is going to bring judgment. Well, Habakkuk is wondering, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, over the spiritual and moral condition of his nation, of how it's completely spiritually and morally bankrupt. He's wondering aloud in prayer, where are you, God? Do you not see what's happening in Judah? Do you, do you not care about the violence and the injustice that your people are committing? Are you not listening to my cries to you for help? Well, God's response to Habakkuk, it shocked him because he was pointing to the new and up and coming world power, the Chaldeans, aka the Babylonians. These are the people who are going to raise up and attack Judah for their disobedience. And Habakkuk doesn't understand God's reasoning. I mean, the Babylonians are worse than Judah. God, you're going to use an unrighteous people to judge the more righteous? And Habakkuk is like, that's not fair. Why are you allowing Babylon, who's way worse than Judah, to attack us? Maybe you go through pain, suffering, you experience injustice, and you're wondering, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Last week, we saw the question that Habakkuk was asking is, where is God? Today, we're going to look at Habakkuk's second question, which is, why God? Which is where we pick up in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Habakkuk's prayer to the Lord. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment, my rock. You destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. 
That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? I want you to notice this morning how Habakkuk approached the Lord and how you and I can respond when we want to know why God permits bad things to happen. I want you to see number one, that we are to trust God's character when you do not understand God's actions. Trust God's character when you do not understand God's actions. After the Lord revealed to Habakkuk that the wicked, evil, no good Babylonians are going to attack Judah, Habakkuk doesn't understand what God's doing. He's got a big question. How could a holy and righteous God who use an unholy instrument to punish Judah? And what you see in verses 12 through 17 is a psalm. This is where Habakkuk is lamenting the evil actions of the Babylonians on the one hand and yet praying back the character of God on the other. And he's having a hard time reconciling God's actions in light of his character. Well, what is God's character that we see here in the text? I want you to see first that God is eternal. God is eternal. Look at verse 12. Habakkuk says, Lord, are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My holy one, you will not die. Here we see him referencing God's eternal nature. This is who he is. He's always existed as God. As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed. God goes from eternity past all the way to eternity future. And God always exists forever. He's from everlasting to everlasting. We see this in Psalm Uh, 90, verse 2, the psalm writer says, Before the foundations were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Go get your pumpkin spice latte and think about that. God has always existed. And he will always exist. He is eternal He is the one who never changes, that indeed Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the one who stays the same. And this is what makes Christmas so shocking. The infinite becomes finite. The one who is eternal enters into time. The one who is above all and glorious above all takes on human flesh. That God himself becomes a baby humbles himself to take on human form like you and I. And he grows up and he humbles himself to serve the least of these. And he humbles himself to wash feet. And he humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the one who is high and exalted, exalted, the one who reigns eternally, we just sing it together, the one who is Lord God Almighty, he is also the one who entered into the world to identify with you so that he might go to the cross and give his life for you, so that through him your sins could be forgiven. Through Jesus, his blood is sufficient to cover all of your sin and your shame. And when you see God's ways, it compels us, y'all, to worship. 
We gather every week as God's people, just as the church has done for thousands of years. We gather on Resurrection Sunday, and we gather to exalt Him who rescued us and ransomed us, not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood. And it compels us in worship. He is the eternal God. The second truth that Habakkuk points to in the text is that God is sovereign. I love that phrase of verse 12. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. Habakkuk is exactly right. God is the one who controls the actions and decisions of pagan world leadership. Don't miss that. Habakkuk understands that God is the one who controls the actions and the decisions of pagan world leadership. Though the wicked foolishly pride themselves on their power, their authority, ultimately it is God who is behind their decision making. The Lord makes it clear to Jeremiah that Babylon and its king is his servant. In Jeremiah 27, the Lord said, By my great strength and outstretched arm, I made the earth and the people and animals on the face of the earth. I give it to anyone I please. So now I have placed all these lands under the authority of my servant Nebuchadnezzar. Don't miss that. King of Babylon. So King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he's not a willing servant, but rather he is a pawn in the hand of the Almighty to accomplish God's greater purposes. We see this all the way back in the book of Exodus, where God raises up Pharaoh for this exact purpose. God says in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That indeed God raises up Pharaoh and hardens his heart to display his power, to show that he is the Lord God Almighty who is sovereign even over the wicked decisions of these pagan kings and authorities. This is who we worship, y'all. The one who is sovereign over all things, even the foolish, evil decisions. He is sovereign over those things to display his glory and power. This is what Habakkuk is drawing his attention to in verse 12. He says, you destined them to punish us. Don't miss that. God raised up the Babylonians for the purpose of punishing his people. That the wicked, evil schemes of the Babylonians is all part of God's providential plan to accomplish his greater purposes. So we indeed see that God is eternal, God is sovereign, but thirdly, we see God is holy. Look at verse 13. He says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and cannot tolerate wrongdoing. By his nature, God is holy. Holy. It means that he is set apart from sin. He is fully committed to his own glory. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly pure in all of his ways. He is infinite in his beauty and excellence. In the midst of not understanding God's ways, Habakkuk is trusting God's character. Oftentimes, this is where we live as believers, is we live in this tension between trying to understand 
the way that God acts and how we interpret those actions in light of his character. In which we say, God, this doesn't feel good. This hurts. I'm going through this divorce. I've had this person unfairly treat me in a terrible way. Maybe you're going through just a terrible trial in your life and it's not your fault. It's the sin of someone else who's coming up against you. Or maybe it's just a providential act that you're just, you didn't see coming and you're saying, God, I don't understand this because this is who you are. This is what Habakkuk's wrestling through. He's saying, God, you're eternal. You're holy. You're perfect and just in all of your ways. You are too pure to look upon evil. This is who you are. Why are you allowing this? This isn't fair. We see King David wrestle through this exact thing. In Psalm 27, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident." He's trusting in the character of God in the midst of facing great hardship from his enemies. And this is the tension that you and I live in. That we are going to face injustice and suffering in this world, and yet we are to trust the character of God. You see, following Jesus does not prevent you from hardship, y'all. In fact, if you're going to follow Christ, you better be prepared to suffer. Paul says in 1 Timothy that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus says in John, I believe it's John 13, in which he says, do, um, do not be surprised when the world hates you. Remember, they hated me first. You see, following Christ does not exempt you from hardship. In fact, you're signing up for it. But you're identifying with the Savior who not only ordains the hardships that you face, he's the one who walks with you through them. He will go with you even as you go through your chemo treatments. He is the one who is faithful and will sustain you even as you bury your loved one. That he is the one that you can lean upon even as you struggle through bankruptcy. That when your business seems to fall apart, he is the faithful sovereign God who says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. So as you struggle and as you face injustice in the world, you trust in the Lord. And since God has promised us that he will never leave us nor abandon us, and he lives inside of us, we can agree with Job when he said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. For us, we live in this tension of trusting the character of God even when we do not understand his ways. And that's where Habakkuk was. And yet, it compelled him to, number two, ask God big questions with honesty and humility. Honesty and humility. Verse 13 begins with the word so. I love that word, so. It means consequently, therefore. In light of what's just been said, Habakkuk is going to ask the Lord some big questions. Verse 13, why? Do you tolerate those who are wicked? And Habakkuk is praying to the Lord, God, since you are too pure to look at evil, how can the wicked be permitted to devour, be permitted to devour someone more righteous than them? God, wouldn't the Babylonians be doing damage to your righteous character? 
Habakkuk is asking God some big questions about his actions in light of his character. And I say to you, God is not scared of big questions, y'all. He's not scared of big questions. And yet when we ask, we do not do so with an accusatory spirit. We don't do so from a posture of hubris or arrogance or even with vengeance. We ask with honesty and humility. After Job and his friends wrestled with the justice and fairness of God for 37 chapters, eventually God says, it's my turn to speak. And then chapters 38 through 41, God unleashes his wisdom of how he governs the world. And for example, in Job 40, the Lord answered Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord, I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? I placed my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply. Twice, but now I can add nothing. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, get ready to answer me like a man. Here we go. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and clothe yourself with honor and glory. Pour out your raging anger. Look on every proud person and humiliate him. Look on every proud person and humble him. Trample the wicked where they stand. And on and on God God goes by asking these really sarcastic questions like, where were you when I made the earth, Job? If you really think you understand what I'm up to, Tell me, who tells the oceans to come this far and no further? Oh, Job, you think you got it all figured out? Who tells the deer when to give birth? Who provides food for the lions? Tell me, Job, surely you know all these things. And I say to you today, if you are questioning God, he's not scared of your questions. But you better make sure you're approaching with honesty and humility. Remember that you're approaching the one who gives you life and breath. You're approaching the one who sustains the cosmos by the word of his power. You're approaching the one who only allowed you to wake up this morning because he said so. You approach with great humility and reverence and awe. That we approach him with the understanding of this. He is God and you are not. You see, God is not obligated to answer you. But make no mistake, you will most certainly one day answer to him. He is the one with all power and authority. So let us be wise. Let us approach him with humility and honesty. And though we are invited by this almighty God to approach him with boldness, yes, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, he tells us in Hebrews. But let us do so through Christ, with humility and honesty. And when you approach him and you ask him why, why, God, did you allow this to happen? Or God, why did you not stop this? He may not give you an answer on this side of eternity. So what do we do in the meantime? When you don't understand the why, trust the who.
when you don't understand the why. Trust the who. The one who is good and sovereign is working all things out for the good of his people and for the fame of his name. And so when we approach God with big questions, approach with honesty and humility, for regardless of why God works the way he does, we know that he has something bigger in store that we cannot fully understand yet. You all know of my love and affection for Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary who went to Burma, now modern-day Miramar. And he suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. For 39 years, he gave his life for the Karen people group. He suffered greatly of his 11 children, most of whom never saw adulthood. His first wife, Anne, after the death of their second child, she wrote these words. Our hearts were bound up with this child. We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may it not be in vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that he will stay his hand and say, it is enough. That in the depth of despair of having to bury now her second child, with tears in her eyes, she's trusting the sovereignty and faithfulness of God. And I preach to make moms like that. To prepare you for suffering. So that on your day of hardship, you do not run away from the Lord, but you run to the one who knows you and loves you and calls you by name. So that when you face hardship, you can rest in the sovereign purposes of God, that he is good and he is tender and he draws near to you. Well, while Habakkuk was affirming the perfect character and nature of God, he was asking Why? Look at verse 13. God, why are you silent when the wicked prosper and swallow up the righteous? For what was Habakkuk was experiencing here, it was only a foretaste of what would one day happen. You see, at the cross, God was silent as the wicked swallowed up Jesus Christ the righteous one. Jesus would indeed cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, Jesus is crying out in the midst of being swallowed up by evil. That indeed on Good Friday, Jesus permitted evil to do its worst. He invited the suffering that would indeed bring him to the point of even the shedding of his blood on the cross. That this suffering that Habakkuk is wrestling with, the big question of why it's ultimately driving us forward to the cross where Jesus, the Son of God, was slaughtered without mercy all for the sake of the nations. That Jesus gave his life on Calvary's cross so that all who believe upon him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the Savior who came and gave his life as a ransom for many. 
And indeed, for on Good Friday, the full wrath of evil was unleashed upon Jesus. And he allowed evil to have its way with him. For he knew that he would be vindicated three days later. For on the third day, evil lost forever. Jesus arose triumphant from death and hell and sin and evil. And he is ruling and reigning the cosmos over the world. Believe upon him today. Trust in Christ. Believe the gospel. Rest in the finished work of Jesus for you at the cross. That if you don't know Christ today, he will receive you. You may be full of sin and brokenness. Well, you're a perfect candidate for his grace. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, turn from your sin and trust in Christ and he will receive you. For anyone who is in Christ, we began there. For all of us are disqualified for God's mercy and grace. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. But God freely gives it to us as a free gift at Christmas. You grab hold of it and you say thank you and you give glory to the giver. You thank him for what he's offered to you in the gospel. And so as you wrestle with the big question of why, trust the who. The one who is working even through suffering and difficulty for the fame of his name and for your good. And he also promises you a day in which evil will be no more. There's coming a day in which Jesus himself will return. The eastern skies are going to split. The dead in Christ are going to rise. And all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ will be caught up together with him in the air. We will be with him forever. Evil will have its final breath. Satan will be kicked into the lake of fire. We will be in the new kingdom in which there is no more sin, evil, death, divorce, bankruptcy, no need for hospitals or funeral homes, no need for locks on doors, for all of the redeemed will be gathered together and we're going to celebrate under the banner and bask in the glory of the Lamb. This is what we look forward to. Okay, church. All right, let's take a time out. I want to encourage you that it's good to rejoice out loud in the Lord. We have something to learn from our African-American brothers and sisters. Lakeisha's with me. Don't be scared to shout out and give God glory. You're not drawing attention to yourself. We're pointing to him. In the midst of great questions of wondering, God, why are you up to doing this? I don't understand it. Here we see God about to lay before us our confidence that we can know that evil has an expiration date. It's number three. Know that evil has an expiration date. Habakkuk continues to plead his case before God. And from his perspective, God has made Judah helpless, like verse 14, like fish without a leader. And even worse, the Babylonians, we see verse 15, they they take advantage of the situation. The people of Judah, from Habakkuk's perspective, are like fish caught up in a net. And Habakkuk is lamenting that the military might of Babylon is so great that the people are helpless. These bloodthirsty killers are so good at what they do. Verse 15, they're glad and rejoice over their violence. They worship their success. They shout with joy over how great they are. And we see that today, y'all. You and I see people all the time who worship their success. 
They boast in how awesome they are. They point to the name on the back of the jersey. They want everybody to know, I'm the best. And as they worship their success, they're revealing their hearts are far away from the Lord. For if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no peacocking before him. There is no boasting and bragging of how great we are. In fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As followers of Jesus, we do not boast or worship our success. We give God the glory for the blessing and for the suffering. We trust him for whatever we face in life. See, people today, man, they love their brand. They love the reflection in the mirror, their bank account, their title, their power, their prestige. These people are arrogant, self-centered, self-promoting, and that's the Babylonians. They're worshiping themselves by terrorizing the nations. And Habakkuk is wondering, is this going to last forever, Lord? Verse 17, will they continue to slaughter nations without mercy? Is anybody going to stop them, Lord? Will it finally stop? And if it does, where is their accountability? Who's going to punish them? And next week, we'll unpack this more. The Lord is going to say, make no mistake, Habakkuk, I'm going to take care of that too. And Habakkuk is wondering, Lord, how long? How long are the wicked going to prosper? Will they get away with it? The answer is, not for long. Evil is not permanent. Evil has an expiration date. As those who know how the end is going to happen, we know that evil does not have the final word. And so as you and I anticipate the last day, when we go stand before the Lord, when evil is done away with, what do we do in the meantime? I think we follow the leadership of what Habakkuk is going to show us in chapter 2, verse 1. It's your impact point, and it's this. When you don't understand, wait patiently on the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk has now finished his prayer, and he says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me, and what I should reply about my complaints. He's going to wait patiently for an answer from the Lord. It's amazing to me how often throughout Scripture we're commanded to wait on the Lord. And it's in the waiting. It doesn't mean we stop working. It doesn't mean we sit on our hands. But it's preserving our souls, posturing our souls in such a way to say, Lord, you're going to do something. I know it. And so in the meantime, until you show up, I'm going to continue to be faithful. I'm going to do the next right thing you've called me to do as a follower of Christ. I'm going to wait upon you. And maybe you're saying, Lord, I just I don't understand what you're doing. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Well, I want to point you to Proverbs 3. Where Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he 
will direct your path. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is working in and through all of your circumstances for your good and ultimately for his glory. Thank you.